So we're moving into chapter 15 of Revelation this morning and our ongoing romp through the book. Um, the last couple of weeks we spent, Randy uh, did a breakdown of chapter 14 for us. He talked about the, uh, the lamb and the 144,000, the harvest of the earth and how there's both a good and a bad element to that. Um, and after hearing uh, what was in chapter 14, you probably have a sense now that there's something big is about to happen. Something dramatic is developing in the storyline, and it sounds even better with this voice. Something big and dramatic <laughs> is coming. Uh, and you would be right. But part of the challenge, as we've seen with Revelation, is its seeming meandering storyline. I mean, we're pretty used to linear storytelling in Western culture. You know, the plot moves from point A to point B to point C. These things happened in this sequence. You just follow the plot, and there you go. You're at the end. Uh, Revelation just doesn't work that way. It's based on a series of visions that tell a story, but it doesn't necessarily tell it in a sequential fashion. So if you think back a ways, we, we've made our way now through uh, the, the uh, stories, the plot line of the seals and the trumpet judgments, chapters 6 through 11, uh, and they are judgments. Uh, you can see we've looked at those here. The seal started off with the white horse designating a conqueror. The trumpets, there was hail, fire, a third of the earth, tree fours, and grass were burned up. Uh, waters were poisoned, all kinds of terrible judgments that came about through the seal and trumpet judgments. And the focus of those judgments is clearly on those who have rejected God. They're often referred to in Revelation as earth dwellers, as opposed to the heaven dwellers, or those who believe, those who follow Christ, uh, and the picture painted for the earth dwellers is not real pretty. But even in the midst of these terrifying chapters, in the middle of these descriptions of, of judgments, there are these parenthetical sections, these, these inserts um, that provide an account of the future for the heaven dwellers, for the perseverers. Even as we're reading about the horrible judgments that are coming for unbelievers, we're reminded, but here's the, here's the future for for the perseverers, for believers. So chapter 7 talked about, the, this the first time we read about the 144,000 who received the seal of God on their foreheads. Now, as we said, we don't believe that's a literal mark. It, it's more of an indication of the hearts and minds of true believers. They're committed to faith in God. God is committed to saving them. And they're described as being made up of every nation, tribe, people, and language. So it's the, it's the global church throughout time. And they end up in this worship before God. And John is given this vision just before the seventh seal is introduced. So we go through six pretty horrific descriptions of coming judgment, and then there's this parenthetical of those who are going to be saved, those who are redeemed before it gets to the final judgment of the seventh seal. And then in chapter 11, the same pattern works. Before the seventh trumpet is introduced, John describes a vision of two witnesses, and they're also described as lampstands and olive trees. And again, they represent the the, the global persevering church throughout the age. And they're described in chapter 11 as being killed by the beast that rises from the pit. So it appears as though the church has been eliminated. It appears as though God has lost this big spiritual battle that's been raging. But then after three and a half days, the witnesses or the church is resurrected and taken up to heaven. And then the seventh trumpet blows signaling the end of time. So in both cases, we're being, shown that the, the, we're being shown the eventual outcome for believers, and it's very different than the outcome for unbelievers. 
And this is intended to give us hope. This is intended to give us reason to persevere and endure. No matter how dark, no matter how heavy things may look, no matter how dark and heavy they actually become for us, we have a better place waiting. Well, then the story changes up a little bit in chapter 12. We, we start to go into the background of why things are the way they are. We're told about this war in heaven and how Satan was thrown down uh, along with angels who followed him, and, and he was called the dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil. There was a vision of, of a pregnant woman and the dragon, which symbolized the church and the enemy of the church, or Satan, and how the dragon really wanted to eliminate Jesus, but he couldn't. So he had to settle for eliminating, or at least trying to minimize the impact of the church. So he's hoping to lure people away from the worship of God and try to direct worship towards himself, thereby creating two classes of people. Those who follow and worship God, those who follow and worship Satan, whether they know it or not, whether they acknowledge it or not. That's it, two classes of people. And then we're told that Satan has helpers in this process. He's got the two beasts, the one from the land and the one from the sea. And the, the strong reference is that the beast from the land represents the power of oppressive governments. Specifically, the inclination of governments towards kind of a totalitarianism. They want to control everything. Just lost my place here. There it is. And then the beast from the sea represents the role of false religions or pseudo-spirituality. We like this pseudo-spirituality. It makes us feel good that we believe in something. We just don't care what that something is. And this turns out to be a very dangerous but effective combination of government and false religion. And the images that come along with that are more than a little bit frightening. They, in fact, I think they, they can even come across as overwhelming for people who are reading through this. And we start to think, how, how can I, as a, as a solitary Jesus follower... How can I possibly stand against a powerful state? How can I stand against this onslaught, this river it's described, a false teaching? And then we get to chapter 14. So as you, as you follow this plot line, the vision in chapter 14 is perfectly placed. As our anxiety is increasing over the spiritual battle we face every day, as our sense of power effectively diminishes day by day, John starts chapter 14 with, the 144,000 again. I saw the 144,000, those who had the name of the Father written on their foreheads, and they were singing a new song, and it's a song of victory. It's a song of redemption. Chapter 14, again, reassures us, reminds us that our faith is not in vain. Whatever may happen to us in this life, however difficult the persecutions, whatever may become, even if it results in our death, those who persevere and endure will find themselves dwelling in heaven for eternity. So we're given this, this parenthetical, we're given this reprise, this glimmer, a promise of hope, even as the end of the age is nearing, which then gets us to chapter 15. So let's pray about this before we go. <clears throat> Father God, we're, we're grateful for the chance to gather here this morning. And, um, you know, as, as we've been going through this series, it, there is a temptation to read, see what, we, what we're seeing here in Revelation, and then look at world events and think, well, it could be Tuesday. Jesus is coming back any minute. Uh, everything seems to be lining up with things that we're seeing in Scripture. But we know this has been the case before. 
Uh, and we don't know when the end is going to come. We don't know when your perfect plan will be fulfilled. We don't know your timing. We do know what we're called to do, and that's to, that's to, per, to, per, to persevere, to endure, to continue to walk in a worthy manner. So I pray as we go through and see this story and see how you've given us this, this glimpse of how eternity is going to work itself out, Lord, that we see the hope. We don't get overwhelmed by the, by the despair and anxiety, but we see the hope. And we continue to live lives uh, that you have called us to. We continue to walk in a worthy manner. We continue to share the gospel with people who so desperately need it in these dark times. So build us up, encourage us, help us hear what you have for us in, in today's chapter. We thank you for ongoing love for us and patience for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So 15, chapter 15 is only eight verses. I'm going to read through the whole thing, and then we'll go back through and kind of dissect it a little bit. <clears throat> then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Fair amount going on here in these uh, short eight verses. Um, it starts off with saying John, John introduces another sign, and it's a great sign. Here's another great sign. That's the same description he used, it's the same introduction he used when he shared the vision of the woman and the dragon. So we're supposed to understand this is a fairly consequential, this is a significant, important vision, and the setting again is in heaven. But we kind of get mixed signals as we read through these eight verses. On the one hand, John sees the seven angels with the seven plagues. That doesn't sound so great. But then there's this worship scene that's described at the same time. But the beginning and the end of the chapter focus on the seven plagues. And of course, we know now this completes the <clears throat> pattern of sevens as it relates to judgment. We've had seven seals and seven trumpets, and now we're being introduced to the seven plagues. Um, we may have said this before, but the number seven is used 57 times in the book of Revelation. It describes 22 different things. Um, but the, the cycles of judgment always occur in groups of seven, and, and, and it describes or, or connotes completeness or fullness. So the cycles of judgment are now coming to completion with these seven plagues. We know it's coming to completion because we're told the wrath of God is finished. With these seven plagues, the wrath of God is finished. His judgment is complete once we go through these plagues. So with that introduction, we're all keyed up now. We're all on the edge of our seats. We want to know about these seven plagues. We're waiting for the details of the plagues. We want to hear what, what comes from these bowls of wrath, but, but John changes it up. The vision changes. Rather than leaping into the plagues themselves, because those are really the coolest part, we think, John describes the rest of the scene. I mean, we know it's coming. It's the wrath of God, but first... 
John describes the rest of the scene, and he describes this sea of glass mingled with fire. Now, we've seen this sea of glass before, several times in the Old Testament. We saw it in Revelation chapter 4, verse 6. That's the scene in the throne room where the seals are first introduced, where we're told that the, only the lion is worthy to open the seals, and then the slain lamb appears. So just before the seal judgments are introduced, we're given a picture, we're given a description of God's throne room. And it says, From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God, and before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. So chapter 15, we have a similar scene now. Just, just before the plagues are being introduced, John's given us another vision of the throne room, and it includes this same sea of glass. And again, I think that just, it punctuates for us the fact that everything that has happened, everything that's about to happen, the instructions we're going to go through here, the directions to the angel, it all originates, it all comes from the command and control center. All of history is going according to God's plan. It's all unfolding on his timetable under the complete command and control of God on the throne, even the plagues and the bowls of wrath. But this sea of glass is mixed with fire. Every other reference to fire in Revelation has to do with judgment. So the addition of fire here kind of adds this ominous, foreboding element to the scene, especially when we're told that the plagues, that with the plagues, the wrath of God is finished. That sounds pretty, pretty dramatic. It sounds like heavy judgment is a coming, and it is. But then John tells us there are other people in the room, too those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name. Now that's a reference to the unholy trinity. So every manifestation of evil, the dragon, the beast from the land, the beast from the sea, the conquerors in this throne room are those who had not yielded to the deceptive accusations and lies of the devil, they did not yield to government coercion that, that forced them into false teaching or abandoning the teaching and following of God. The conquerors in the room are those who refuse to be seduced by the whore of Babylon, who we'll be talking about shortly. So what's being referenced here are the, the true followers of Christ, those who have persevered and endured and contended for the faith, even when it meant death or, or, or poverty or persecution. And here they are, gathered in the throne room of Almighty God for what amounts to a worship service. These overcomers are all assembled together. They have musical instruments in their hands. They have a song on their lips. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here focusing on the harps, because I think this is how we get that awful image of angels sitting around on clouds playing harps. It's not the instrument that's necessarily the issue. It's, it's how the instrument is being used, the, the purpose of the instrument. In fact, I kind of wondered if John was writing this, had these visions today and was writing the book of Revelation, would harps be replaced with like Fender Telecasters or it'd be some whole different, you know, accordions or it wouldn't be accordions. <laughs> they might be used in worship, but at someplace else. You know what I'm saying? Right, Ben? <laughs> so there, there's this, this, this worship service that includes music and, and singing, which is what we see here. And it says they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God. 
and they sing the song of the Lamb. So you may remember the song of Moses way back in Exodus 15. After the tenth plague, Pharaoh let the Israelites leave Egypt. They, they packed up and they left in a hurry, but Pharaoh changed his mind and he sent the army after them. People got to the Red Sea and there was water before them, an army behind them, and they didn't know what to do, and the Lord parted the water and the people went through on, on dry land. The Egyptian army got there, they followed them through, and the water came in and swallowed them up. And immediately following that, we see in Exodus 14, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashores. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. And the very next verse says, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. And thus begins the song of Moses. Fifteen verses follow this introduction. Fifteen verses about the people singing about the power and sovereignty of the Lord. Fifteen more verses extolling the virtues of the Lord, his holiness, his, his great deeds, his steadfast love for his people. And that song ends with, the 15 verses ends with, the Lord will reign forever and ever. That was the song of Moses. It was a song of salvation. I mean, it was their literal, physical salvation from Egypt. It was a song of redemption. Now we're back to Revelation, and this assembled mass of musicians and singers, this group, which is probably the same 144,000 that's been mentioned several places before, this collected body of saints and martyrs throughout the ages, they too have been witnesses to God's power and sovereignty throughout the age. They too have witnessed his holiness and his great deeds and his steadfast love for his people. And so their song, similar to the themes in the Song of Moses, their song was a, a, a physical salvation, but this one in Revelation also is the Song of the Lamb. So it's a song of spiritual salvation as well. Because now the sea of redeemed people, this mass of Christ's followers, they can see how God is bringing history to an end. They can see how their eternal rest, how their avoidance of the wrath of God is all due to the sacrifice of the Lamb. They've been saved by the blood of the Lamb. And they sing, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So this combined song of Moses and the Lamb, it's not nearly as long as the song of just plain Moses was. But the song of Moses was, was in response to a very particular set of circumstances, a very specific series of events. This song of Moses and the Lamb is a song of worship and gratitude for, well, everything. It wouldn't last 15 verses. This song will go on forever. For all of history, this is, we're just being shown this snippet here, this moment in time that John was allowed to see this. This song is going to continue throughout the ages. Great and amazing are your deeds, all of your deeds. Throughout history, you, you've, you've saved and, and maintained a, a remnant of the faithful. You've held back your judgment. You've held back your wrath for generations. Until such time that everyone had a chance to believe. And now the people are seeing this 
how history is unfolding, and they, they say, if only we truly, truly understood how just and how true are your ways, then who would not fear and glorify your name? But the sad reality is many will not glorify his name. So this is a song of victory for those who do glorify the name of the Lord. It's a song sung by overcomers, by conquerors, those who persevered and endured. All of those who were encouraged in the seven letters to the churches in the very beginning, who were called to persevere and endure and conquer and overcome. Those who, in spite of adversity and and persecution and martyrdom even, they chose the right side of history. They continued to walk in a worthy manner. They chose to side with God, and they chose to put their faith in the Lamb who was slain. And now the end has come, and their faith has been vindicated. So this is not so much, I don't think, about rejoicing over the punishment of the wicked. There is an element of that to it. But this is more, I think, uh, uh, about celebrating the God of history the Christ of salvation, acknowledging and celebrating the holiness and righteousness of God who chooses to bestow his holiness upon the rest of us. And now it says, all of your righteous acts have been revealed. I mean, this has a sense of finality or closure to it. It's all been revealed. Well, then the focus of this chapter, the focus of this vision, changes again. After this little worship service, Now we're told, after this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished." So now we're back to the seven plagues and the bulls. But first, John stresses here, he he points out the arrival of the angels with the plagues, actually where they're coming from. He says they come from the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven. Other translations might say the tabernacle of testimony in heaven. Either way... Excuse me. Either way, this, this points us to, or I think reminds us of the idea of the Old Testament tabernacle, which included a separate tinted-off area, the Holy of Holies. That was God's dwelling place. So whether it's called, whether your translation says tent of witness or tabernacle of testimony, the similarities are pretty strong to an Old Testament tabernacle, and only the high priest was allowed to enter the most holy place in the Old Testament. But here we're told that angels are coming out of the sanctuary which has been opened. It's no longer closed off. Now, the end of chapter 11, which also describes the seventh trumpet, it also refers to God's temple in heaven being opened. And in chapter 11, John saw the temple opened and saw the Ark of the Covenant there. So that's another throwback, another connecting point to the past history of God at work in his people. The Ark of the Covenant, of course, contained the Ten Commandments. It was a written testimony of God's perfect law. So John's present vision of the future heavenly temple is now connected to the Old Testament through the inclusion of the Ark. So we're being shown this story that encompasses all of history. 
And that connects us again to the Song of Moses. The testimony or the witness here in chapter 15 also includes, as we've been told, the Song of Jesus, because Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of God's law. He came to fulfill the law and the prophets. His life, his death, his resurrection was a witness or a testimony to the power and sovereignty and love of Almighty God. Now, my, my ESV uses tent of witness, but I really kind of like the tabernacle, uh, Tabernacle of Testimony translation, just because it's more of an obvious connect with the Old Testament. There are 17 places in Revelation that use variations of the word testify, like testimony. 17 times in Revelation that word is used, and in every case it refers or relates to testimony of or about Jesus. Jesus is the testimony. Jesus is a witness to God's activity Jesus is, is the, the, the witness, the testimony of God's power. He's testimony of the proof of God's work throughout history. Which is why the saints were singing the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb. Jesus has a prominent role in all of history. And this, this vision of the heavenly temple just shows us again that God's fingerprints are all over history. So immediately following this act of worship, the Song of Moses and the Lamb... John tells us that the angels are coming from the throne of God. They've been inside this most holy place, and they now emerge with the seven plagues. So they've apparently been commissioned. They've they've received their orders uh, from the seat of power. They're going to carry out the next phase of history. And then we're told in rather dramatic fashion, the, the plagues are poured out on the earth and all hell breaks loose. Except that's not what it says. The stage is set. The plagues are at hand. That they've been introduced. We're already told how the end's going to play out. You know, through the seven seals and seven trumpets. We, we're all waiting for this exciting conclusion. And John describes the angel's wardrobe, which seems odd. At least it struck me as odd. I mean, even in Revelation, which is fairly odd overall, we're, we're, we're being led into these events that describe the end of the world. And John takes time out for a fashion assessment of the angels. It says the angels are clothed in pure white linen. They have golden sashes around their chests. And we've read about so many unusual images throughout Revelation. Perhaps this one's kind of got lost in the fog there somewhere. If it sounds a little familiar, it's, it's because it ought to be. We first saw this in the first chapter. John has this initial vision. He says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. So back in the very beginning of this book, these verses describe John's first encounter, his first, his first vision of Jesus, and he describes him as one like the Son of Man. Now Randy talked about this a little bit last week. The Son of Man shows up several places and how it's always a reference to Jesus. In fact, Jesus referred to himself as a son of man on numerous occasions. So we know this is a reference to Jesus. And now he's wearing, in chapter 1, the same outfit as the bowl or plague angels are wearing in chapter 15. I mean, how embarrassing is that? They're wearing the same outfit to the end of the world party. <laughs> now I don't know what this means. I don't know why this is important to point out here. It, it may just imply that there is an association between these angels and Jesus? I think that's probably what it is. That they've just come from the temple where they're likely commissioned by God for this task, and they appear dressed 
similarly to Jesus. So perhaps they're representatives carrying out these judgments. I'm not sure, but John felt compelled to mention it. Well, then we go from there to the four living creatures. The angels come out, they've got the plagues, and then we're told that the four living creatures, these, these cherubim that were first mentioned in chapter 4, they're apparently ever-present in the throne room. They're not just casual observers. They're not part-time worship leaders. They play a supporting role in this whole process, kind of like the angels here. And the four living creatures, it says, gave to the angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God. Now, as I read through this for the, I don't know, 148th time, this confused me a little bit. A lot of bit. I wasn't quite sure what to make of this, but I found it really interesting. I mean, in every, every explanation, every discussion, every teaching I've ever heard about the plagues and the bowls, they're always dealt with as though they're the same thing. Like the bowls contained the plagues. They were containers, Tupperware for plagues. But that's not what's laid out here. It reads as though these are two separate things happening. The angels emerge from the tent of witness with the seven plagues. And then the four living creatures gave to the angels the bowls of God's wrath. So the plagues are connected to, but somehow distinct from, the golden bowls of wrath. I just, I'd never noticed that distinction before. I've never heard, really heard it talked about. I've always just assumed that they were one and the same. And perhaps they are. But there is, a, there is a distinction that's spelled out here. And I'm not really sure what to make of it. Here's my best guess. That's all it is. Feel free to discard. Here's my best guess. That the plagues represent the, the methods and the means that God is going to employ to bring about his judgment. That's how he's going to display or bring about his wrath. And we'll see those in more detail over the next week or two. So the, the plagues are the physical judgment, the physical effects of God's judgment. And then the bowls represent the reasons, the, the, the motivations, the cause that bring about the plagues. Which include things like man's ongoing rejection of God. The, the, the earth dwellers uh, and their treatment and persecution of the saints. Those are part of God's wrath. God's anger against the unholy trinity, the dragon and the two beasts. All contained as, as part of God's wrath. So the plagues are the judgments themselves, the what part of this. And the bowls of God's wrath are the why. They explain why we've gotten to this point. And they work together, but they are separate. We know that God's wrath has been building throughout time. We, we keep being told throughout all the seals and the, and, and the trumpets, we saw over and over again, but the people refused to obey. People refused to obey. Even after these significant cycles of judgment are introduced, after the increasing levels of, of judgment, people refuse to obey. So I don't know if this, this separation of the bulls and plagues is correct. I don't want to read anything more into it than there. But the distinction is there. And I think, we, I think part of why maybe this is laid out this way is because we have people in our culture who, who go out of their way to deny God, but then they'll say, and even if there is one, he's this vindictive, overbearing, mean, angry 
judgmental God. But this is showing us that there's, there's reason for it. These plagues are not the result of an arbitrary and punitive God who just messes with people. He's not like the, you know, the Greek pantheon of gods who are, who are written about just, they, they mess with people just for fun, just to see what was going to happen. This, this is not this God. So we're being shown this, there, there are reasons, there, 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 there are, there's motivation behind these plagues. And the plagues are a judgment against those who have disobeyed and rejected God over and over and over. They've been given every chance. People who, who continue to worship the dragon in spite of the evidence that points to a loving and patient God. There's going to be a consequence for that. This is the consequence. And I think, too, it's really easy for us, even in the, you know, we have this whole subculture of revelation understanders who have all these great various ways of interpreting this. It's easy to get caught up in the methods and means of judgment. We want to, you know, we want to be able to identify these plagues and, and enumerate them and then set up a timeline so we know when Jesus is coming back. So we get caught up in the details. But I think the point is that the plagues come about as a result of man's disobedience. God's wrath, he's kept on hold for centuries. He's been waiting for the fullness of time. And then we will see his righteous judgment. So in my opinion, again, which you are free to discard, the plagues and the bulls are treated separately, but they do work together to tell us how this end is going to come. It's also telling, I think, in a very symbolic kind of way, that God's wrath is represented by golden bulls. Golden bulls were a regular part of priestly service in the Old Testament. First and Second Chronicles both mention the use of golden bulls. And then there's another really interesting connection between Old Testament times and, and present or future times. Um, but there's a, another interesting connection in Revelation. If we look at back in chapter 5, it says, When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the throne, each holding a harp, there's another harp again, and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So in chapter 5, we're told that there are golden bowls, but they're incense, which represent the prayers of the saints. So we have this repeated use of golden bowl imagery, which is interesting. And then chapter 6 tells us even more about chapter 5. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So the prayers of the saints are, how long, O Lord? How long is this going to go on? I know we're supposed to persevere and endure, but how long do we have to persevere and endure? How many more people have to be martyred in your name? Now, if they're not the same, bold, same golden bowls, at least they're thematically similar to the golden bowls mentioned here. And I think they're the same. I think the idea here is this is showing us that God is now answering this prayer of the saints. They ask, how long before you're going to judge? How long before you avenge our blood, they ask in chapter 6. In chapter 15, the golden bowls reappear, and God says, now. Now is when I answer your prayers. Now is the time. So the bold judgments, their, their accompanying plagues, are now answering the prayers of the souls under the altar. It's also interesting, I think, to, that the imagery of the bull 
and God's wrath is not unique to Revelation. In Isaiah 51, Isaiah is making an argument for obedience to God. He's trying to remind the Israelites why they are called to obedience, but he also points out the consequence of disobedience to them. And he says in 51.17, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. Verse 22, Thus says your Lord, the Lord your God, who pleads the cause of his people, Behold, I've taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more. So the first one's a warning against those who don't repent and turn back to God. And the second one is, here's what happens when you do. And they both talk about the cup of God's wrath, the bowl of his wrath. So again, again, I think that we're seeing this continuity throughout history, continuity throughout the Old Testament. There's a thematic consistency throughout all of Scripture. It all tells the same story. It even uses the same imagery. So the angels now have their plagues. There are various assignments. They've been given the bowls of God's wrath. They know what they're doing, and they know why they're doing it. They understand the horrible, consequential events that are about to come, but they also understand that judgment from God is righteous and true. And immediately after the angels are fully commissioned and they're, they're fully armed, weaponized, ready to go out and do their, do their job, the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And we've seen this on at least two other occasions, both in the Old Testament. When the, when the tabernacle was first consecrated in the days of Moses, and when the new temple was being dedicated by Solomon, in those cases, the, the, the text says something like a cloud, a representation of the presence of God came down and settled on the space. It inhabited the space, and it prevented the priests from doing their job until it lifted. It's the same idea here. It's the same thing we're seeing here. God has made his decree regarding the plagues. The the end is at hand, and his power and glory fill the space. Power and glory over the course of human events. Power and glory that will result in cosmic justice that's been a long time coming. Power and glory that leads to a new heaven and a new earth. That's coming in the chapters ahead. And so we see here, even, even in heaven, even in heaven, God's power and glory is so beyond compare to anything else, other heavenly beings are not allowed to enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues were finished. And this puts a nice little bookend on this chapter. It starts with, it tells us the wrath of God is going to be finished with the plagues. It ends with the seven angels, the seven plagues were finished. So we're, we're being given here this, this rare, another rare peek behind the curtain that I think God allows to help us to maintain our faith. He's showing us what our future holds for eternity. And this is cause for hope. We live in a culture that is increasingly hopeless, increasingly overcome by despair. We have hope. And even as we struggle with our own day-to-day cares and our anxieties in this life, it almost seems encouraging to think, yeah, but this life won't last forever. It's going to come to an end. And the next one goes on for eternity, and it's going to be a whole lot better than this one. You know, I think we have too easily in our culture and our country bought into the lie that if God loved us, we would be rich and carefree. That's the real mark of God's blessing. You know, if you're just stupidly happy and have more money than you know what to do with it. 
when the clear and consistent teaching of Scripture is that followers of Christ are likely going to face persecution and suffering. And yet we're encouraged. He encourages us. He enables us to persevere and overcome and endure. Now, there are a lot of joys and blessings that come in this life. God gave us an amazing world to live in. But ultimately, our kingdom, our home, is not this one. This world is a copy and a shadow of the richness to come. So the most important question that we will ever have to consider is, where am I going to end up for eternity? Do I have a personal faith in Jesus as Savior? Does my life reflect it? Am I prepared to deal with setbacks and persecutions, even martyrdom? How am I at persevering? Let's be honest, we all have our good moments and our bad moments. But will we drink from the cup of God's love and blessing, or will we drink from the cup of God's wrath? Jesus came, and he died to give us a way out of God's wrath, to to help us overcome the judgment. And I would just encourage you, two classes of people, those who follow God, those who follow Satan. If you've not put your faith and your trust in Jesus to save you from your sin, talk to somebody afterwards. Come see me afterwards. We can help you solve that problem. We believe in a good and gracious God, and his, his judgment is not without reason. But you don't have to deal with all of it. You can avoid an eternity in hell and rather have an eternity in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, we continue to be challenged by these, by these texts, by these <coughs> visions that are so rich and so deep, so layered. And we still feel like we're just scratching the surface on so many of these things. It really is remarkable to see how your, your story is told throughout time on so many levels and in so many different ways, through words and through pictures and through images and through themes. It's amazing when we can just uh, see enough to even connect some of these dots. And it should be encouraging for us. It should encourage us to, to remember, to realize that you are the God who knows the beginning from the end, who's the author of time from beginning to end. And I pray that as we go about our, our daily lives here, that we continue to find ways to endure, to persevere, that we are encouraged, that we continue to keep our eyes fixed on the hope that is set before us. And we don't give way to anxieties and stresses and, and the despair that is offered by the world. And Lord, I pray that each of us um, is encouraged enough in our own faith, in our own walk, that we find ways to share it with other people. There are so many people in such dark places who need to hear about the love of God, who need to hear about the forgiveness of sins, who need to find that, that joy in this life is not dependent on the circumstances, it's dependent on the promise of God. So help us be better ambassadors as we, as we, we move forward out into this next week. Thank you for your love for us, for, for sharing these, these truths with us. In Jesus' name we pray.